Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Coffee and Cases. Sadly, Maggie and I are still practicing social distancing, so this week's episode will be done solo again. In my fantasy world, we would have been back to normal by now, but it appears that that'll just be a dream for a little while longer. So, if you are new to Coffee and Cases, please know that our podcast has changed slightly as our world is adjusting to a global pandemic. While we are being asked to keep our distance from others, to stay inside when possible, and to not gather in large groups, we ask that you bear with us. Podcast has changed a little as well. Until we can return to normal, take care of yourselves. Do something creative today. Take a moment to just breathe. Call up an old friend to catch up and share our podcast when you do. Write a letter to someone who means something to you and imagine the joy on your loved one's face when he or she receives your note. It's the small moments of happiness that we create that can change our perspectives right now. Thank you for bearing with us and for understanding. We care about you. Stay together, united in the human spirit, even if not physically, and stay safe. Now, on to this week's episode. If you ask anyone who knows me at all, who I would say was one of the most influential people in my life, they would say, oh, Allison will say her grandma, no question. And it's true. She was a stubborn woman. She didn't take any disrespect. She would never let me slack. Even an A minus was a sign that I could have worked harder. But did that woman know how to love? When I would get off the bus and saw that she had a picnic basket packed with a thermos of milkshakes and some wrapped sandwiches, the bamboo fishing pole loaded in the car, I knew that each item had been packed by those beautiful wrinkled hands that had tilled fields, shucked corn, snapped beans, raised children, and gave the best lingering hugs. She truly molded how I saw then and still see the world. She would pull out books and have me create stories based on the pictures. She would push me out the back door with a pencil and paper in hand with the task of writing a poem about the leaves. We would sing along to her old record player, yell out answers while watching Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy together, and talk on the phone when she wasn't watching me at her house like we were best friends. And that's what we were, best friends. When my elementary school burnt down in third grade, I remember feeling terrified until I saw my grandma's face when she came to pick me up, seeing her brought an instant sense of safety. 
And that's the kind of relationship that I imagine for the grandmother and the grandson in our story today. So when the Spanish Civil Guard responded to an automobile accident and found both the driver and his wife deceased upon arrival and had to call the driver's mother, her response makes sense to me. I'm sure that's one of the hardest calls to make, to let a family member know that a loved one is no longer with us. But that hard phone call in this case became one of confusion. When the civil guard called to say that both Andres Martinez and his wife Carmen Gomez had passed away, they likely expected tears. But not the response that Andres's mother gasped out. And the boy, please tell me the boy is all right. She was speaking of her grandson. But there were only two bodies. Where was her grandson? In a case often dubbed the strangest missing person case in Europe, this is the case of Juan Pedro Martinez, the boy of Somosierra. Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Instead of repeating our request for more reviews, which obviously we would love, as Maggie and I normally do with you each episode, I want to tell you again how much we miss hearing from you. When Maggie and I get written reviews, we literally squeal to each other over the phone because we love getting them. We want to hear from you. Your voice, your opinion, it matters so much to us. We love, obviously, when you comment on Apple Podcasts, but we also love when you comment on our Facebook page. It makes us feel like we're creating friendships all across the globe. So this week, instead of merely asking for five-star ratings, which again, we would love, I'm going to switch it up a little bit and just say that Maggie and I want to hear from you. We're lonely. We're thinking about you guys. We do all the time. And we just love that communication from you. Whether it's a case you'd like to hear, your opinion on an episode, something we can do to help us spread the word about the show, or just simply a hello. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Now, on to the episode. Before I begin today, I do want to go ahead and apologize for any mispronunciations. I honestly tried to research not only information for this 
case for this week, but also how to pronounce names. But I am sure that my Kentucky accent will flub something up. So here is my apology from the outset. In the early morning hours of June 25th, 1986, a large tank truck traveled along the mountain pass in Somosierra. Seeing a truck on this road wasn't abnormal. What was strange was the behavior of the truck that was being driven by Andres Martinez. The truck careened through the mountain pass as though driven by someone frantic or possessed or at least incapacitated. First, he came up fast upon the rear of another vehicle, but instead of slowing down or passing the vehicle, he rammed the back of this other vehicle with his truck and used his own momentum to push the vehicle off the road and into a ditch. And he didn't stop. Next, Andres's truck passed another so closely that he tore the side mirror off that second vehicle. Then, Andres increased his speed 86 miles per hour as he blasted down the mountain, driving recklessly until he, without ever hitting the brakes, hit a final vehicle head-on, and Andres's truck violently crashed onto its side, killing both Andres and his wife Carmen, and spilling the contents of the tank both into the cab of the truck and onto the road and surrounding landscape. And my sleuth hounds, the spilling of the truck's tank contents was not something innocuous, but instead was 5,200 gallons or close to 20,000 liters of sulfuric acid. Now, for those of you who don't know how dangerous this spill is, let me give you some insight. Sulfuric acid, while colorless and odorless, is highly corrosive. And the thick liquid is so powerful that it can eat through metal very quickly. For a person, it causes immediate and severe burns to skin and tissue and can cause blindness if it comes into contact with your eyes. Even inhaling the fumes can cause difficulty breathing. Worst yet is that sulfuric acid reacts violently when it comes into contact with water and releases in that violent reaction a poisonous gas. This final fact gave those who responded to the accident pause for two reasons. Number one, there was a river nearby. All precautions had to be taken to make sure the spill did not reach the river, which also happened to be a water supply. And number two, when the acid poured from the truck, it fell on the grass of the mountain pass that was covered with the morning dew. So the whole scene was clouded by dangerous fumes, forcing the responding workers to wear gas masks as they worked through the rubble. Luckily, all of the drivers of the other vehicles, the one forced off of the road, the one whose mirror was torn off, and the one that was hit head-on, survived. Unluckily, when the Civil Guard opened the cab of Andres' truck, as I indicated earlier, they found the acid-burned bodies of both Andres Martinez and his wife Carmen. It was then, upon the declaration of death, that they had to notify next of kin, and when they did, they heard that the tragedy wasn't over yet, 
as they now had a missing child case as well. Where was Andres and Carmen's son Juan Pedro? Was he even with his parents as his grandmother believed? And if so, what happened to him? Did anyone see anything? And could the erratic drive have had something, anything to do with his disappearance? Before I offer what can only be conjecture about these questions, my sleuth hounds, let me tell you the details that we can verify. 10-year-old Juan Pedro was from Morcia, a town with a hot, arid climate, so dry that very little vegetation would grow. But he heard his father talking about how his next delivery with his truck would take him to the Basque countryside with rolling green fields where cows would graze lazily. That image, which Juan Pedro had only heard about in school, sounded like heaven. He begged his father to allow him to ride with him for the delivery. He wanted to see the grass for himself. So his father brokered a deal with him, get good grades, and he could accompany his father on the trip. The task was an easy one for the well-mannered and studious young Juan Pedro. He excelled, in fact, and since his father Andres had given his word, now was the time to follow through. Juan Pedro had ridden on delivery trips with his father before, but they'd been much shorter trips. So, to put Andres's mind at ease that he could care for his son while also paying attention to the road, he brought his wife Carmen along to help him. And let me just say, I feel this. I love my child. She is self-sufficient, but it has still been hard to concentrate on my virtual teaching and grading while trying to help her with school as well. So, I get the need for help. And Andres would have been in close quarters with Juan Pedro being in the cab alongside him. So it makes sense to me why he asked his wife for this to kind of be a family trip. At 7 p.m. on June 24th, 1986, the small family left in Andres's sister's car since the only vehicle Andres owned was the Volvo F12 truck that he drove for his job, and it was currently in Cartagena, getting fitted with a tank of sulfuric acid. According to one article I read, the truck began the trip normally. The only stops recorded on the tachometer were scheduled ones. And in order for you to understand the science behind figuring out when the truck stopped and its speed, let me go ahead and take a moment to tell you about a tachometer, what it does, what it measures. So. A tachometer measures the number of revolutions that an engine's crankshaft makes each minute. So the vehicle's RPM. If you've ever noticed that dial on your dash, that's what it measures. In a car with an automatic transmission, you probably don't pay much attention to this dial, but with a manual transmission, this dial can help you gauge when to shift gear. The danger area is marked in red, called the red line, and staying in the red too long can cause near immediate damage to the vehicle's engine. Now, I was not able to find any research to support this, but, Nearly every source I read about this case cites the truck's tachometer as the evidence that the family of three had stopped at 9 p.m. on June 24th, two hours after leaving their hometown, and we verify by eyewitnesses that they had stopped at a restaurant. 
The truck stopped again at 12.12 a.m. on the 25th at a recreational area, and again at 3 a.m., this time to refuel right outside of Madrid. The final stop before the mountain pass took place at 5.20 a.m. at an inn to get some breakfast. The waiter there vividly remembered the family, including that Juan Pedro was with them. The waiter remembers that the parents both ordered coffee and they ordered milk and sweets for their son. Some reports said cake, one said pastry. The reason Juan Pedro stood out to the waiter was because he was dressed in a matching red sweater and red pants and the man was curious because it was rather warm outside and the young boy appeared dressed for colder weather. Other than that though, there was nothing peculiar about the three. Andres paid for the meal, and they left. Only 30 minutes later, however, Andres and Carmen met their end. What could have happened in only 30 minutes? In addition to the two minor accidents before the final crash, the truck's tachometer, according to those reports, reveals something even more peculiar. On the way up the mountain, Andres stopped, full stops, by the way, 12 separate times. Other truck drivers who frequently took this path were interviewed and noted that there was no need to have stopped on the ascent at all. But Andres did. Those 12 stops ranged in length from one second to 20 seconds. And the stops were made at different speeds, some slowing to a stop, others nearly slamming on the brakes. Now, sleuth hounds, this is when we venture into the world of speculation. To me, the frequent stops sound like someone trying to test the brakes. I could totally see myself, if I thought my brakes were giving out, testing the brakes by doing exactly what Andres did, stopping at various speeds to see how quickly my vehicle would stop. That, to me, is a logical explanation. After all, if there were an issue with the brakes, this would also explain why Andres didn't even attempt to brake when he hit the final vehicle head on and why he was going 86 miles per hour down the mountain. However, investigation completed after the accident revealed that the brakes were functional, no obvious problems. Now, while checking my brakes if I thought they were failing seems logical, it's not logical to check them just because. Since the logical reason for stopping seems like it can be thrown out the window, we must look into other theories. Some believe that Andres was trying to stop a tailgating vehicle. I personally have never been upset enough to do this since I try to just let things like that go, but I know several people that if someone's following them too closely, they will brake check the tailgating vehicle, hoping that that tailgating vehicle will rear end them because in a lot of states, in that type of accident, the trailing vehicle is always the at-fault party. Others argue that something was distracting Andres. Did he see something off the side of the road that kept catching his attention and he kept trying to stop to get a better look? Was there a bug or a creature inside the vehicle that was distracting him? I know I personally would drive erratically if I had like a wasp or something inside my car. Could that be what caused the stopping as well as the accidents? Still others believe that something might have happened at the final stop for breakfast. Some speculate that Juan Pedro was kidnapped 
and that Andres's reckless driving was a result of chasing the kidnappers in order to get his son back. Those who believe this theory use the kidnapping as an explanation for why Juan Pedro's body was not found in the truck along with his parents. Instead, the Civil Guard only found toys, a children's music cassette tape, and the sole of a shoe that couldn't be verified as Juan Pedro's. If not a kidnapping, where could he have gone? Well, before we explore the kidnapping theory, let me dispel some rumors and then explain two of the other more common theories proposed for what happened to the 10-year-old. So I asked my husband about the tachometer, and while he has admittedly never driven a semi, he has driven a fire truck, which has, I would assume, a similar engine. He told me that at least on a fire truck, there's no way a tachometer alone would have been able to reveal what time a truck stopped, nor for how long. Well, those stops along the way before the mountain pass, perhaps instead could have been verified by way stations or eyewitnesses, like I mentioned. And again, if the semi is anything like a fire truck, that tachometer would also not have been able to show that Andres came to a full stop 12 times while going up the mountain. So did it happen? Did a witness in another car see the truck behaving oddly and count the stops? And additionally, especially in 1986, the speedometer would not have been able to tell Andres' speed going downhill in the crash. So unless a listener out there who drives semis can reveal otherwise for us, I'm left wondering if this is one of those cases whose details, by being passed along via word of mouth, has been altered or exaggerated. Regardless of whether the truck was stopped several times or was going 86 miles per hour, we do know that the three accidents happened and we still have a missing child. The first proposal to explain the missing child is that Juan Pedro was ejected from the truck in the accident. His family has noted that this theory is plausible because he would not have been wearing a seatbelt. Perhaps some of the sulfuric acid from the punctured tank had entered the cabin and burnt Juan Pedro's skin before he was ejected or even from the ground after he was ejected. There was, as I mentioned earlier, a river nearby. So many speculate that he might have tried to make his way to the river thinking he could rinse off the acid and that he had passed out from the pain once he made it to the river and was swept away in the current. However, I feel like, especially with the corrosive nature of sulfuric acid and the difficulty in breathing it, right, the difficulty that that can cause if it's inhaled, that the fact that Juan Pedro was only 10, he likely would have passed out from pain long before reaching the river. And since the investigators, with the help of the Red Cross, over 10,000 volunteers and search dogs covered almost 19 miles or 30 kilometers and found no trace of the boy, that theory doesn't seem likely. Fearing the worst, a second theory also posits that Juan Pedro was in the truck and that the acid, by the time investigators had the scene contained, had already fully dissolved his body. Now, 
It did take investigators three hours to contain the scene. They did dump sand and lime on the acid to dispel the fumes and all of that before they were able to look for bodies in the cab of the truck. And it is true that Andres and Carmen had acid burns. However, they searched for Juan Pedro's body all around the scene and they were not able to find any trace. And according to an article by Robin Warder, experts determined that in the time it took them to contain the scene, find out that there was a missing child, and search the area again with a narrowed focus of finding him, the acid would not have had time to dissolve a body. There would have been bones left behind at least, since sulfuric acid would take five days to dissolve bones, but none were located. One chemist... Alberto Boras said that hair and nails at minimum would have remained, but again, nothing was found. One report stated that perhaps those remains were somehow buried under the sand and the lime that was laid to contain the acid spill, and that because the organic material was covered up, the rescue dogs, the search dogs, couldn't smell it. Now, this report claims that the top layer of soil was turned in an attempt to find Juan Pedro and that the searchers came up empty-handed, but I wasn't able to verify the truth of this report. And just like that, with every other theory that we dismiss, the kidnapping scenarios seem more plausible, especially when those vehicles that were hit or driven off the road by Andres's truck. Get this, sleuth hounds were visited by passengers, strangers, in a white van, each of them after the accidents. Some even reported seeing the white van, a Nissan Vanette, following Andres' truck before the accidents. Some eyewitnesses, two shepherds in the area, said that the passengers were a quote, Nordic-looking man and woman, end quote. The descriptions of the two often lead conspiracy theorists to kind of speculate about the supernatural in terms of Juan Pedro's disappearance, citing the fact that Nordic-looking is often a description that's given to extraterrestrials and that the description by these two shepherds were that this couple were unusually tall, extremely pale, and were bundled in white coats like lab coats. Odd. In a seemingly differing account, the man who was pushed off the road said that the couple who stopped to check on him was a mustached man with a foreign accent and a blonde woman. The man with a mustache told the truck driver that the woman was his wife, who was a nurse. The pair quickly checked on the man involved in the accident and then moved to the drivers of the second and the third accidents. Others say that they also saw an elderly woman sitting silently in the vehicle of the mustached man and the blonde woman. And I want you to remember this detail because it will be important later. After only stopping briefly to see if the driver of each of those vehicles was okay, it said that the couple approached Andres' truck. Reports say that the couple walked away from the truck with a, quote, bundle, and some question whether the bundle were Juan Pedro. 
Could the couple have been extraterrestrials? Well, those who think so call our attention to the fact that in order to have approached Andres's truck, they would have had to walk through the acid and the poisonous gas to retrieve the bundle. More likely, could they have been kidnappers? Might they have seen Juan Pedro at the inn and grabbed him and they were now just checking to see if either parent were alive? Had they threatened to take Juan Pedro and now that Andres and Carmen were gone, they took him away with them? We may never know because the shepherds who saw the couple, they were never located. Now, Slutowns, my curiosity was peaked, so I did a little research on child abductions, and what I found were some really interesting statistics. In over two-thirds of cases, the child kidnapped is 12 or older, and I would have thought it would be way younger than that. But what I found even more interesting is that very few are abducted by strangers. So could this have been one of those few cases with an abduction by a stranger, or did Andres know this couple? Yet another theory, which unfortunately, again, is all we have, is that Andres was approached by the couple to transport drugs in his truck, and after Andres refused to do so, Juan Pedro was kidnapped in order to force Andres to smuggle the drugs. Those who believe this theory say that it holds water because, according to Lindley of Echo's Path, the government, quote, had recently softened the laws regarding possession and use of drugs, which had caused rippling effects in the population of Spain, since the possession of drugs for personal use was decriminalized in 1983. Statistics gathered showed a dramatic increase in cocaine and heroin addiction. In 1986, Spain had the second largest population of heroin addict citizens in Western Europe. Interpol reported that Spain was being used as an entry point for South American cocaine as well as heroin from Southwest Asia. But who was bringing in and distributing all of these narcotics? The U.S. Embassy pointed the blame in several directions. The drug trade was being controlled by international drug trafficking networks linked to countries that produced the product. But they also confirmed that, surprise, surprise, the mafia was involved. They took advantage of Spain's lax laws and crime increased, end quote. Lindley then acknowledges that even though Spain had tried to strengthen laws and control the drug trafficking, that drug smugglers were simply finding new ways to transport their goods, including using truck drivers who were hauling legitimate cargo and could easily make it through police checkpoints. Most don't think Andres would have agreed to transport the drugs willingly, as he was never known to have any links to narcotics, but... If that's the case, and Andres' truck crashed, then they must have already had Juan Pedro in their possession. Otherwise, you wouldn't kidnap a child and hold him as insurance of getting a job done if the person who was supposed to carry out the job were already dead. A year after the accident, when the case changed venues, the investigation was reopened and the truck researched. It was upon the occasion of this second search that a hidden compartment was found in the truck that held traces of heroin. Could Andres have been forced into aiding in drug smuggling? Could that have been the package the couple took from the truck? 
Or were the traces of heroin there from the previous owner of the truck since Andres had just recently purchased it, according to some sources? As you can see, sleuthhounds, nearly everything is speculation. What if the couple who stopped, since we know someone stopped, at least to speak with the other accident victims, were just good Samaritans? What if they found and picked up an injured Juan Pedro and drove him to a hospital? Could they have dropped him off somewhere and due to trauma to the head from the accident, he couldn't recall his name? Might he have died on the way to the hospital and being in a foreign country and not wanting to get in trouble, the couple had left him somewhere? potentially with someone. I have to say though, both of those seem unlikely to me for the same reason. After the accident, citizens of Spain saw this case everywhere. Juan Pedro's family distributed over 85,000 flyers. I would think that either his body would have been located and identified or if he had lost his memory and were in a hospital that the hospital staff would have recognized him from the media pictures. So basically, I'm admitting that I have no idea what happened to Juan Pedro. My personal opinion goes to something that I haven't even mentioned yet. It's kind of a combination of several of the details that I've shared. I think it's plausible that Andres was approached at one of the stops and propositioned to smuggle the drugs, as that theory goes. And maybe even his family was threatened to try to convince him to do so. Since Andres's family reported that he had been receiving threatening phone calls prior to leaving for the trip, I wonder if Andres was being followed by the white van, as some of the witnesses testify. And maybe at one of those 12 stops on the ascent, he had Juan Pedro get out of the truck and run as fast as he could to hide from those following and threatening the family. Then maybe he continued breaking to either check that Juan Pedro was safely hidden or to throw the tailgater off so the stop to let Juan Pedro out wouldn't draw attention. Andres might have even crashed on purpose in order to shift the focus of the ones who were giving chase and save his son. Of course, just as with the other theories, I have no evidence. My opinion is just as unfounded as the rest. After the accident, there were a few sightings of children who looked like Juan Pedro. In several small towns surrounding Somosierra, people reported seeing a young boy dressed in red walking on the side of the road. But no boy in red was found in any of the small towns upon closer examination. The sighting that gave the most hope to Juan Pedro's family that he was still alive came from a teacher at a driving school who said that in Madrid in 1987, so several months after the accident, he saw a young boy accompanying an elderly woman, perhaps the same elderly woman who some saw as a passenger in the white van with the mustached man and the blonde woman. The teacher said that the old woman was blind hence needing a guide, and was foreign. Now, recall that those in the other vehicles hit by Andres' truck that day mentioned that the mustache man and the blonde woman had foreign accents as well. The boy with her looked to be to the driving instructor about 10 or 11. The elderly woman led the driving instructor to believe that the boy was a member of her family, 
and that her family had only been in Spain for six months. But the boy guide spoke Spanish with an Andalusian accent and seemed disoriented. Noticing what excellent Spanish the boy spoke, the teacher asked the elderly woman about her guide. You know, how does he speak such wonderful Spanish? He said that she immediately changed the subject and left. It was later, when the teacher saw Juan Pedro's image on the television, that he realized that the boy on the screen looked like the same boy serving as the guide to that elderly woman. And that Andalusian accent made sense as well, since the area of Spain where Juan Pedro was from had a similar accent. However, even though the driving teacher went to the police, the old woman nor the boy were ever located. And hope of finding the boy from Somosierra, as Juan Pedro has been dubbed, was lost again. The strangest missing persons case in Europe. The case of Juan Pedro Martinez would send shock through the surrounding countryside. Somosierra, a town with a population of only 80, was not the place where something like this happens. And who could now travel through the town without thinking about the still missing child? the conspiracy theories, the speculation. Even though his face and story were featured on many television shows, no verifiable sightings have panned out. What have perpetuated are the theories. Was this a staged kidnapping? Was this a drug scheme gone wrong? Were there extraterrestrials involved? Did Juan Pedro die in the accident? If so, why did they not locate his body nor any part of it? Why the erratic driving? Why the mustached man and blonde woman? Who are they? Where are they? According to one source, Juan Pedro's family pleaded for help from authorities because they were receiving death threats that would be carried out if they continued their own investigation into the disappearance. If true, that's the stuff conspiracy theories are made of. But can this be trusted either? In this world, there's so very little that can be verified. So many quote-unquote facts can be skewed by phrasing, by insufficient sources, by leaving information out. What I do know is that if Juan Pedro is still alive, he's in his 40s. And that mysterious couple from the white van is also likely still alive and able to provide information as well. The other thing I know for sure, that grandmother loved her grandson Juan Pedro very much. Her wrinkled hands, just like my own grandmother's did for me, also loved and raised a grandchild and they prayed unceasingly for his safe return. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll, we'll see, see you, you next week. week.